This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everybody, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this program, we've got Bob Chisholm with us, Dr. Bob Chisholm with us, and we're going to be discussing spiritual warfare in the book of Job. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Come one, come all. We've got some spooky stuff going on today, talking about Job and spiritual warfare. It's going to be a fun program. Uh, lots of divine counsel stuff. There's some weird stuff at the end of Job that's kind of Leviathan-y. We wonder if that's kind of a spirit or a thing. It's going to be really cool diving in uh, with this subject with uh, Dr. Chisholm. But before we do that, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. So if you want to support the channel, there are links in the description to do so. Top two links, one link for PayPal and one right beneath it is for Patreon. If you give on PayPal, you can give of any amount, whatever you want. And if you give on Patreon, as low as five bucks a month, you'll get access to extra content there on Patreon. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to my friends... Uh, Michael, how are you doing over there in the Oklahoma? I am doing good over here in the Oklahoma. I'm, uh, so one thing that excites me about this episode, besides its content, and I, I read Dr. Chisholm's commentary on it, and it's excellent. Um, but uh, besides the, the content of the show is actually the person. Bob, I'm, I'm excited to, to talk with you. Now, he, he told me when I met him, just call me Bob. Uh, but uh, Bob and I met at... Uh, ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society in Denver this year, and it just turned out that he needed a ride to the airport. So we ended up giving him a ride and found out he was a professor at DTS and uh, Dallas Theological. And uh, so we just kind of started going back and forth on theological topics. And I found out he was really into this spiritual warfare and Job thing. I was like, I want to talk some more (laughs) to you about that in front of lots of people so <laughs> let's have this conversation live so uh bob super excited to have you on the show um i know i just gave a very brief snippet of introduction to you but if you could just maybe uh expand on that a little bit and, and especially tell us uh how people can get connected with you and some of your writings anything that you're working on well it's good to be here and it was providential the way we met michael and i'm glad uh-huh. that we Amen. are able to meet uh, today. Uh, I have been a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for 42 years. I'm currently chair uh, and senior professor. I have the dreaded senior uh, added to my title a few years ago. Uh, And you can just go to the Dallas Theological Seminary website, look under faculty, and you can find my picture. And there is a whole list of what I've written Uh, And I think if you Google me, if you just Google Robert Chisholm or Robert B. Chisholm Jr., uh, you can find uh, video clips and presentations that I've given uh, here and there. So 
the internet's wonderful. It's pretty easy to uh, access the uh, uh, my writings and any lectures that I've given. Okay. Well, we can uh, we can just jump right into the uh, the interview then, and let's let's talk a little bit about the Book of Job. And so, of course, Job, this book about this man who suffers horrifically. And the introductory scene is kind of strange. And we want to spend a little time, especially on Job 1 and 2. You have Satan or Hasatan in the Hebrew uh, appearing before God. And and maybe we can actually start right there. Because even before we kind of get into the sequence and the flow of how Job 1 and 2 sets up and frames the whole book. And I just got to tell you guys that this actually changed my perspective on the book of Job. It, it helped my understanding the way uh bob you talk about it is set within the context of a cosmic conflict that's actually meant to help us understand suffering and so fascinating fascinating stuff and we'll get to all that but i want to start with this and uh and that is uh, a lot of our viewers are fans of the late dr heiser and uh dr heiser was on the show many times and um one of the things that that Heiser said was that that phrase Hasatan, uh, the Satan, as it's translated in Job one and two, I remember when I first heard him say this, I was like, "Wait, what?" That he, that he he says, "Well, this is actually just a member of the divine council," and so uh, as a member of this divine council, we might even need you to to unpack that for us a little bit. He, he said that this was an adversary, but he was sort of a God-appointed adversary. He wasn't like what we would understand as actual Satan, as the devil. He says this is not presented to us as a name, but rather a title. And so this was someone uh, playing, de- almost like playing devil's advocate within the, the divine council, uh, so that he was actually a good angel, and so which raises all kinds of other weird questions like why is a good angel instigating god i mean it's just weird so um help us maybe even understand the convert uh, the scholarly conversation around that and your take on it is satan in the book of job actual satan or fake satan well my answer to that's going to be yes but before i go counter to what my good friend michael said on this particular point i want to make uh, i want to emphasize that michael and i were pretty much on the same page when it comes to divine counsel and the importance of spiritual warfare in the Old Testament. I met Michael many years ago at ETS and uh, we hit it off pretty well and uh, have had contact over the years. And so I'm uh, definitely uh, a fan of uh, Dr. Heiser and uh, a lot of his work. But on this particular subject, he's not alone. There are individuals, other individuals, uh, when you get into Job studies, uh, who are saying this, that the Hasatan, it's not a proper name, and Michael's correct on that, it's a title, the adversary, the accuser, perhaps, um, will say that this is not the Satan that we know from later in Scripture. This guy's just doing his job. He's the cosmic prosecuting attorney, and uh, he's just simply doing his job, and he sort of disappears from the pages of the book after this, once he has uh, done his job. Uh, I disagree with that. Uh, I think he may be a member of the council and he his function may be to serve in a prosecutorial role, but 
I think of him more like if you're familiar with uh, Les Miserables uh, and uh, Inspector Javert, he's on the side of justice and right, but he's evil. Uh, and he pursues the repentance, uh, Jean Valjean, throughout the book. Uh, and he really is the Satan figure uh, in that book, I think. Uh, at any rate, uh, I, I see the Hasatan here as the same individual that we later know as the devil. Now, I do agree that it's the proper name, Satan, in my opinion, does not show up in the Old Testament, not even in First Chronicles 21.1. That's just an adversary. Uh, In the Samuel parallel, it's the Lord who incites David to number the people. And I think in Chronicles, when it refers to Satan, it's just referring to an, an adversary, a nation, a neighboring nation that was maybe gearing up militarily that the Lord used as his instrument to get David to uh, incite the people. So, yeah, I don't see the proper name in uh, the Old Testament, but I do think that this reference to the adversary is more than just the neutral or even good cosmic uh, prosecuting attorney. And the reason I say that is uh, in Job uh, 2, 3. Uh, I'm going to have to get the text up in front of me here where... um, the uh, Lord is talking to uh, Hasatan, and he is uh, saying to him that uh, he has incited the Lord. Okay, I have having, it right here if you want me to read it. I got it now. I just got, okay. you know, different. Uh, so he uh, says, uh, and he still holds firmly to his integrity. I'm reading from Net Bible. So that may be the way to translate that next clause, so that you stirred me up to destroy him uh, without reason. Uh, And that verb stirred up um, can mean incited, uh, tempted, tricked. uh, And I don't see that as a neutral kind of thing. Uh, I see the agenda of Hasatan here as being sinister. He has stirred up the Lord to destroy Job and without reason. And he's, he's criticized for this. Uh, and some people are going to say, well, according to James 1.13, you can't tempt God. God is untemptable. I think it's kind of the literal way that James 1.13 reads. So why is the Lord saying here, you sort of tempted me, you incited me against uh, Job? I think the Lord's taking Hasatan's perspective. Because theologically, we know he can't be tempted, but he's using that kind of language because I think he is reflecting Hasatan's um, perspective. And this is really accusatory in my understanding. And so it's not just some kind of neutral uh, reflection on what Hasatan has done. It's an accusation. You have tried to incite me uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, to destroy a man with no good reason to do this. And you've challenged his integrity And you've challenged my justice because you've implied that I don't have adequate reason to be blessing him. Well, you don't have adequate reason to be accusing him. I see this as very accusatory here by the Lord. And I I don't see this as just a neutral response. And then uh, more recently, several scholars and two in particular in books, Robert Fiall and then more recently, Eric Ortland have argued that there is this theme of evil and spiritual warfare all through the book of Job. 
uh, and I agree with them. And to me, the Hasatan does not disappear. Uh, his title disappears from the book, but he is the reality behind Leviathan in uh, Job 41. He is the reality behind Leviathan. Uh, and uh, so in the end, the Lord makes it clear to Job that he is involved in a cosmic warfare. Uh, Leviathan, who has a mythical dimension, he's mentioned in chapter three in a very mythical sounding statement where the Lord, uh, uh, talk, I mean, Job talks about uh, those who conjure up uh, Leviathan in order to destroy the day of his birth. He wishes they would do that. He calls upon them to do that. Leviathan obviously has a mythical dimension, uh, and then Leviathan reappears right at the end of the book in chapter 41, which I find very interesting. Job mentions him right off the bat when he starts complaining in chapter 3, and then the Lord mentions him right at the end in 41, and I see a strong connection there. And I think if you read Fial and Ortland, uh, you'll see how this works throughout uh, the book. And I do hope to publish the commentary that I let you read, uh, Michael, but hopefully that'll uh, that'll happen. But I've got a lot of other writing. Yeah, we're projects. looking we're looking forward to it for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we promise we won't publish it before anyone else does. Uh, anyway, I'm okay. just kidding. Uh, uh, it's great content, and and I'm curious. Uh, we just kind of hung out in one and two there for a moment, but if we could define our terms, because a lot of people on our program are very familiar with Dr. Heiser, but some people are coming to this for the first time because they're like, that's a dope thumbnail. I want to know what that's about. And they don't know anything about uh, the divine council worldview, those kinds of things. Can you maybe set up the idea of what the divine council is there in Job? Could you maybe explain yeah, like Job 1.6 on the sons of God and whether Satan yeah. is a son of God? Uh, and then maybe some of those kinds of nuanced phrases uh, that we have there in, in the beginning of Job. Yeah, well, the, the heavenly council... Uh, I prefer heavenly counsel because divine counsel uh, creates problems of definition. Michael Heiser wrote a great article on this in our journal Bibsack uh, many years ago, but I, I prefer heavenly counsel when you're talking about the Old Testament. But we see in the ancient Near East that there will be a high God, like in the Canaanite system, Ale, and he has these other gods that form his assembly or his, his counsel. And I think a lot of people have this idea that the God, the one true God of the Old Testament is just up there. There's some angels around, but uh, he is up there. But what we see in the Old Testament, and, and to me, the two best texts to see this are Psalm 89, uh, verses 5 through 7 in the English translation, which actually use words like assembly and council, and they picture these supernatural beings who are not on a par with, with God, the one true God, but they are there and they form a council that surrounds him in the heavens. Uh, and then also in 1 Kings 22, there's a passage where Micaiah, the prophet, has been imprisoned because he, um, Ahab doesn't like him. And Ahab brings him out and Micaiah has been told by the Lord to lie to Ahab. That's probably a topic for another day, divine deception. But he's he's told the lie, and he's going to do that. But then Ahab puts him, so he says, you're going to win the battle. You're going to get a victory. And then uh, Ahab puts him under oath. And at this point, he has to tell the truth. And he talks about a vision that he had where he sees the Lord surrounded by the host of heaven. Uh, and uh, the host of heaven would be like stars and the sun and moon, uh, which in Old Testament thoughts, there are, there are angelic realities behind 
the stars. Uh, and so there's this assembly uh, that's brought together and the Lord sets the agenda. He says, we are going to deceive Ahab. Now, let's have some proposals <laughs> and different individuals speak. And then the spirit, uh, it's in the Hebrew, it's the spirit. Uh, and I think it's the spirit who energizes the prophet says, I'll go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets uh, and uh, deceive him in that way. Uh, and so these are the sons of God. Uh, the phrase sons of God occurs in Genesis 6 and uh, here in Job. Um, there's a slightly different expression that's used in uh, Psalm 29 and Psalm 89. But they're sons of God, not in the sense that God gave them birth. But the whole idea of uh, sons of in Hebrew means beings that are in a class of the word that follows. So they're divine beings. And that gets a little tricky because the Hebrew word Elohim isn't always used just for the one true God. And that's where Michael's article in Bibliotheca Sacra several years ago is really good. And I would recommend it. Um, so there is a heavenly council. Uh, there are supernatural beings that surround God. Actually, some of them are angels. Uh, and the Hebrew word Malachim means messengers. And so that's their role. Um, so there is this ruling assembly headed up by the one true God in heaven that we need to be aware of uh, in the Old Testament. Now, in Job 1.6, it says that the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, show up in heaven. They're reporting in. There are some other passages like Deuteronomy 32.8, where the Lord says, I'm keeping Israel for myself to rule directly, but I'm parceling out the other nations too." the sons of God. Uh, the Hebrew text says sons of Israel. The Septuagint says the angels of God. I think the original text said sons of God and what you have are two interpretive traditions. Um, but there are these beings and that have jurisdiction over nations. And so it makes sense that they would have to report in. And that's probably what they're doing there. Now, it also says that this Hasatan was with them. So does that mean he's part of the council? He was among them, um, but is he really part of the council or is he just reporting in, kind of coming along with them? The text isn't really clear on that. He might be a member of the assembly, uh, maybe not. Um, but why is he reporting in? It seems as if his jurisdiction is a little broader. He's been roaming around throughout the earth. He doesn't seem to be have delegated authority over a particular nation like we see with other council members. Like in uh, Daniel, we've got the Prince of Greece and the Prince of Persia. And in that context, we're talking about supernatural beings. We're not talking about kings on earth. Um, but they've given, been given jurisdiction over particular nations. And same thing with Deuteronomy 32.8. Uh, so... It's a little unclear on what his status is, but nevertheless, um, the reference to the, the heavenly assembly in Job 1 is kind of incidental. It's just sort of background. I don't think it's going to play into the actual plot of the book all that much, but uh, we're not really sure whether Hasatan is a member or not. Okay. Well, so you have uh, Hasatan who we understand as Satan and the devil. That's, that's your understanding. That's my understanding too. That's uh, my understanding, and, yes. And then you have the, the sons of God. You describe them as this heavenly council, but you also, in referencing Deuteronomy 32, 
uh, seem to suggest that these were the overseers of the pagan nations, the sort of um, spirit being overseers of the pagan nations who are mm -hmm. coming back to report before God, which seems to put them in the category of um, evil, uh, evil divine beings, sort of, uh, if that even makes it like... Well, maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Uh, well, the reason here's why I ask, because uh, Job 38.7 talks about uh, the... Actually, I, I pulled it up here because I thought of it while you were talking. It says, when the morning stars... You talked about stars mm -hmm. being right. references to angelic beings. The morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, shouted for joy. That's got to be good angelic beings right. of some kind that are shouting for right. joy. There's probably not a devil and some kind of fallen spirit being shouting for joy over the creation of the material world. And so kind of help us wrestle through that. Are, the, good, are these good guys or are they bad guys? Yeah, I, I would see sons of God as a broad term for members of the heavenly council and assembly. Uh, some of, maybe some of whom have been given delegated authority over nations and some of whom have gone rogue. <laughs> and, you know, let's, and they tend to be these patron deities like Chemosh of Moab, who I think in Kings is described as striking out against the Israelite armies and causing them to retreat. Uh, that's probably a subject for another day. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't think they're all necessarily evil. But in Psalm 82, which is a very tricky psalm um, to know what's going on there, the Lord seems to stand up in the assembly of Ael. Is that his own assembly or is this some kind of polemic against the Canaanite god Ael who had an assembly? Uh, and he criticizes these members of the assembly for not uh, doing their job, you know, not promoting justice on earth. And consequently, they're going to die like men. Uh, and so it's uh, there. I'm not saying that all of the sons of God have necessarily rebelled, but I, some have for, for sure. Okay. And it, it's hard to pin down what's going on in Job 1.6 because there's just the gaps in the text. There's not a whole lot of detail there. Again, because I think it's more of an incidental setting kind of thing. At the time when the sons of God report in, um, Hasatan was with them. Okay. Mm. Well, I, I'm curious, like with the, there's, there's a lot of, because again, we, we're, we're in the charismatic space, so we're always engaging in, uh, a lot of the charismatic arguments in regards to demonology uh, and right. having, we would call it open doors, right? Like a willful, unrepentant sin. And that, that will allow and cause and give an opportunity for the affliction of the enemy. Whereas Job is recorded over and over again for being righteous. Like he's right before God. Like he's a good dude. Uh, and his buddies, when they're like, hey, you're going through this affliction, you clearly have an open door. Now they, they say that, you know, God doesn't bring any judgment. Uh, so, so they are not necessarily attributing it to demonic forces, but how does that inform our discussion when it comes to those who are righteous and living righteously still being giving opportunity for the devil to to persecute and afflict? How are we to understand spiritual warfare in connection with living righteous and still suffering by demonic forces? How, how, do, how do we make sense of that? Yeah, well, I think the book of Job is is here to uh, give us insight into that very important uh, question. Yeah, and I think Job's friends believed in retribution theology, strictly applied. 
and retribution theology is that if you are righteous, God will reward you. But if you are evil, you will be judged. You will be punished. And so you can tell from just looking at someone whether they're living righteously or wickedly. That was their assumption. Uh, remember, this, this shows up in the New Testament. People are still thinking this way. Lord, who sinned? Referring to the blind man, him or his parents. There's this assumption that for somebody to be blind like this, this long, he has to have sinned. And that's called retribution theology. And Job's friends are real proponents of it. And I think what the book of Job does, it shows us in the end, by the way, it affirms retribu uh, retribution theology, doesn't it? Job has been rewarded by God in the past for righteous living. He has experienced God's blessings. And in the end, blessings are restored. <laughs> and uh, he, wants, he lives to a ripe old age and he once again is wealthy and has children. And so the book affirms retribution theology, but it qualifies it. Because if you read Proverbs, you might think, well, it's, you know, some that could be the source of retribution theology strictly applied. But what the book of Job does, it helps us understand that it doesn't always work that way. We live in a world where there is an enemy. And unfortunately, he's going after righteous people. Uh, and I think the ironic uh, truth that we see in Job is that God will sometimes subject the righteous to suffering in order that they can prove the reality of their faith and their commitment to God. And you might think, well, God's omniscient and he doesn't need to know that, but maybe God wants to prove it to the enemy who clearly challenges him uh, in this uh, book. And so I like to correlate it with 1 Peter 1.7. If we recall in 1 Peter 1, 7, Peter makes the point that they're they're suffering, but it's an opportunity for them to demonstrate the reality of their faith. And the suffering is like refining fire. And they're going to emerge from this vindicated. And he even gets into this in chapter 4, verse 17, when he talks about how judgment is going to begin with the house of God and the believers. And you're thinking, whoa, why are they undergoing judgment? But I think what is meant there is God is going to subject them to persecution and trouble in order to purify the community. Uh, because remember in his uh, parable of the sower, Jesus made the point that some will not continue when persecution comes. And so I think what we see in Job is Job suffers because he is righteous. So I would say the theological position that you summarized earlier needs to be qualified in light of Job, just like mm -hmm. retribution theology needs to be qualified in light of Job. It's a very important book in that regard. Sometimes you will suffer because you are righteous, and it's a little bit scary. Yeah, for sure. I love yeah. it. Makes, it makes me think of uh, in the introduction to i think it was the work you sent me that you'd written on the fear of the lord and you quoted yeah. d.a hubbard who said this about wisdom literature he says proverbs seems to say here are the rules for life try them and find that they will work job and ecclesiastes say we did and they don't <laughs> yeah and i think hubbard is summarizing <laughs> the way some people approach it 
you know, they, uh-huh. they see, yeah, they see Job kind of going against retribution theology. And uh, I think he tries to show that that view is not correct. But uh, yeah, that's the way some people view it. And what I was trying to do in that article was uh, show that there's a unifying theme to the wisdom literature. And it's the fear of the Lord, which means that you recognize his authority uh, and you submit to it and you demonstrate that you are submitted to his authority by fleeing from evil. And Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the starting point. Uh, it's the foundation. Uh, two different words used for beginning in Proverbs uh, in, with, in that regard, one in chapter one and one in chapter nine. But I think the point is in Proverbs, it says you start with the fear of the Lord and here's how you live wisely. Here is how you demonstrate fear of the Lord. Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, is trying to get people to that point. You know, Kohelet is looking at the world under the sun, and he's bringing up a lot of problems. Things just don't seem to be fair. Um, Chance and time seem to just level everything. And he's trying to frustrate his readers to get them to the point where they recognize, um, you know, life doesn't make any sense under the sun. There is no, nothing that explains what we see. And it's very depressing. And at the end, what does he say? The frame editor anyway, who I think may be Kohelet, says, and so what have we learned? This is the lesson that we learned. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And of course, as Christians, we go beyond the commandments and the law because Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. And so we see it in uh, even a fuller sense. But fear of the Lord is the lesson that comes out of uh, Ecclesiastes. And people will sometimes say, but I don't see that in Job. But it is there. In Job's debate with his friends in chapters 27 and 28, uh, he is fed up. He's just fed up. Um, He's been accused of being unjust to the poor. Uh, That's what Bildad accuses, I mean, Eliphaz accuses him of in chapter 22. We know what your sin is. You've been uh, unjust to the poor and you have exploited them. And that's why you have become impoverished. See, retribution theology. By looking at how Job is being punished, they can figure out his sin. And they've been urging him to repent. He can't do that. If Job capitulates to them and repents and says, yes, I did sin. He, he, the, the Satan just won. <laughs> the Satan just won and, uh, and God has not been justified in blessing. So Job has to hang in there and he hangs in tough. And in chapter 27, he calls a curse down on his enemies. He basically appeals to God to judge between him and his friends, uh, which I think are really enemies. And then in chapter 28, which a lot of people don't want to give to Job, even though there's been no indicator of a change of speaker. They say it's not the agitated Job of the chapters around this. But you know, when people are going through intense suffering, they're not always agitated. Sometimes they're reflective. And, and Job is making the point to his friends, you think you've got it all figured out. You think you have wisdom. You think you understand how God works in the world according to your retribution model. Yeah, but, he, but Job has given them all kinds of exceptions to that model. And he says, the fact of the matter is you can hunt everywhere. You can go deep into the earth. You can go way up into the heavens. You can look everywhere. You will not find the key to understanding how God works. It's just not that simple. But here's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is wisdom. 
And by fear of the Lord, Job means not an understanding of how God is operating in the world. That's beyond us. Full understanding. We, we, can not, we don't know anything unless he reveals it to us. But one thing that Job does know, the fear of the Lord is to obey him and to flee evil. And I've done that. And of course, then if he'd stopped right there, he would have been okay. <laughs> but in uh, chapters 29 and following, he goes in a tirade and he says, but it hasn't done me any good. God has not, uh, not rewarded me for it. Uh, and that's why God later has to come and say to him, who is this who darkens counsel? Uh, because Job accuses God of being unjust. Uh, yeah. And consequently, God has to rebuke him for that. But remember at the end of the book, when, he, when God is talking to the friends, he says, you have not spoken to me correctly or properly. Uh, you have not spoken about me correctly, like my servant Job has. And so you wonder, whoa, where, we, where did Job speak correctly? And I go right back to chapters 27 and 28, where the debate kind of ended. And uh, Job appealed to God. Uh, and I think in the end, God says, Job was right by the way, when he talked about the fear of the Lord. Now, I just had to rebuke him for accusing me of injustice because I'm trying to give him more insight into how the world works. There's a big war going on and he thinks I'm against him and I'm really on his side. Um, and so he explains all that through the speeches, but he also rebukes the friends and uh, really warns them that they're going to be in big trouble if Job doesn't intercede for them. So I think the book of Job holds up the fear of the Lord as a, as a primary theme. Uh, and that, that is what unites the wisdom books. Okay. Amen. Well, what do you think, what do you think about like, so from Job's perspective, it appears that it appears that, uh, you know, wind and fire and, and war and pestilence, that kind of thing is, has destroyed his life. Right, he he acknowledges that God's sovereign and in control. So maybe in another sense, he maybe it looks not only as these natural things, but they kind of look supernatural because maybe God did these things to me. But then for us, we're reading the book and we see that there's a, a messenger, a, a spirit that is sent. Or, you know, maybe it's an evil spirit that's done this to Job. So are we to understand this as natural as God as an evil spirit? Can you explain to us primary causes, secondary causes? Like how are we to inter interpret this event? Obviously, from Job's perspective. It might not be as as important. Maybe though, maybe though, it is as important that we put our lens on through Job, so that when we're going through something that appears to be natural, we can. Anyway, I don't know. I'll let you untangle that knot of thoughts that I had. <laughs> yeah, great, great question, and you've you've touched on the um, the answer. I think when you mentioned primary and secondary causes, often in the Old Testament, uh, the uh, it, it refers to God as the source of every you know whatever. Uh, it frequently bypasses secondary causes and attributes everything directly to the Lord. Uh, and so I think you need to remember that that's kind of a Hebrew way of thinking and expressing, but not always. And in this case, uh, the Lord takes ownership of this. Uh, he really does. He says, you have incited me against my servant Job for no reason. And later, the narrator in chapter 42 says, refers to all of the calamity that the Lord has brought about uh, upon him. So the Lord takes ownership of this. At the same time, he gives Hasatan the, uh, the right to attack Job, not kill him, but do everything but. Uh, and then the Hasatan in turn uses means, uh, 
fire, wind, the Sabians, the Chaldeans. Uh, and so you have these levels here. You have the primary um, source of what has happened, the Lord. But Satan, his, his instrument, I would say, of testing. And then the Satan has all of these other things at his disposal. And those are instruments of destruction that he brings against Job. And this is not the only place we see this kind of thing in the Old Testament. Isaiah 10, proud Assyria is God's instrument. He uses them and then he turns on them. Uh, Habakkuk, where Babylon serves this role. God uses them uh, and then he will, in the end, judge them. You even see it in the New Testament when Paul talks, I forget the chapter and verse on this, but where Paul talks about giving someone over to Satan for discipline. So the Lord is not above using Satan even as his instrument for discipline, judgment, or in this case, in the case of Job, testing. You know, so that's kind of the way I see that. Okay. Amen. Now what? Uh, Josh, were you about to follow up? Oh, I just said amen. Uh, it means uh, like, let it be, or I agree, or oh, way to go. In the Pentecostal tradition, we, we kind of yeah. just encourage one another with like those <laughs> Bible church guys don't know what I'm talking about. Go ahead, Michael. It's your turn. <laughs> yeah, well, um, so I want to, so you're, and you're talking about Satan just now. I want to just really kind of press into this spiritual warfare some more uh, while also touching on a question that I had asked earlier uh, where I quoted the guy who said, here are the rules of life, try these, and they work as a sort yeah. of summary of Proverbs. And then you, you said that that Job and Ecclesiastes offer their qualification of that, and kind of each in their in their different way. But it seems like one of the major ways that Job qualifies do these things and it all work out for you is that the book of Job introduces the theme of spiritual warfare. Like there's a whole cosmic battle that we're caught up in and and this really affects things. So yes, the Proverbs are generally true. Yes, it's generally true that if I do these things, good things happen. And if I do those things, bad things happen. So these things are generally true. Um, however, you can't make God into a rule book and there's this whole giant cosmic battle going on. That's kind of what I understand you saying. Feel free to yeah. correct me on that or modify that. But I want to just kind of it, it, ask you this. How, how can we understand? So we, we've looked a lot at Job 1 and 2. And you made reference to Leviathan, but we have Leviathan, we have Tannin, some other creature in uh, chapter 7, verse 12. We have Rahab mentioned in nine, chapter 9, verse 8, 13, and 13, and 26, 12, and then Behemoth in chapter 40. And so we have all these creatures throughout. So help us understand how these of speak into that supernatural qualification. And I know that's, there's all kinds of debate there. These mythological are these natural yeah. and so on. Yeah. But, but really I, I'm, I'm asking you to help us see this supernatural broad brush by touching on some of these different creatures. Yeah. Th these are great questions, by the way, guys. Um, and I think what we have to see is what God is trying to do in these speeches, because he starts talking about animals and the way the world works and God himself has been criticized. I mean, there are quotes out there that say, I just read the book of Job last night and I think God would get an F in pastoral counseling. 
And some people will say, Job wants to know about injustice and suffering, and God takes him over to the uh, museum or to the zoo and shows him a bunch of animals. Um, that's not fair to God, because back in chapter 12, Job, when he's talking to his friends, arguing with his friends, he said, you guys need to go and look at the animals. You need to go and look at the animal world, and you can learn a lot of truth from that. And so God takes Job up on that. Uh, and I think what God is doing, and this really supports, it's one of the reasons that I have bought into the spiritual warfare model for understanding Job, is as you go through this, God begins to describe, he, because Job feels like chaos has kind of taken over the world. And God begins with the fact that he designed the world, uh, amazing design and beauty. And the morning stars were, and the sons of God were celebrating and rejoicing at God's creation. So right off the bat, God says, no, the world has not been given over to chaos. And then he talks about the sea. And the sea in the ancient Near East and in the Old Testament is a symbol of evil. Uh, and the uh, sea uh, wanted to take over at creation, but God would not allow it to do so. In fact, God even gave it baby clothes. Um, so God is sovereign over the sea, but the sea is out there. It's out there threatening, always threatening. And then God talks about darkness and light. And uh, at night comes, there's this darkness, and that's when evildoers do their bad deeds. But every morning when the sun arises, that's a reminder that God has not given the world over to chaos. And so he's beginning to develop this theme. And and he talks about uh, the different elements of nature, which he, by the way, keeps in an arsenal for the day of battle. And so God is talking about himself as a warrior. In fact, when he shows up, he shows up in the whirlwind. And if you look at that language elsewhere, that's judgment language. God shows up in the whirlwind when he's about to do battle. And so he's the divine warrior. He shows up uh, to talk to Job as the divine warrior. <clears throat> And you're wondering if he's going to <laughs> do something bad to Job, but he doesn't. But he does want Job to see him as the divine warrior. And then he gets into the discussion of the animal kingdom. And it's amazing, you know, the fact that God gives life to all of these animals and helps preserve that life. But at the same time, some animals, some animals have to survive by killing other animals. And so it's a picture of conflict uh, and death and destruction. Mm -hmm. And so I think the Lord is painting a picture for Job of the way the world is. And we could debate whether God created it that way. You get the impression that he did in chapters 38 and 39. But then again, when you try to correlate that with Genesis, you might want to argue that that came after the fall or maybe after the flood. So that's that's kind of a, an issue of when it happened. But remember in Romans 8, Paul talks about God subjecting the world to this conflict and everything is groaning the whole world is groaning and travailing waiting for the day of redemption and so that's what god is doing with the animals and looking at nature he's showing job the kind of world in which we live and then he stops and job responds and god is not entirely pleased with job's response job says you're overwhelming me as i predicted you would if you showed up and uh, I'm not going to say any more. I've spoken once, I've spoken twice, and I'm going to stand by what I said. And so God, again, 
uh, responds to Job sort of forcefully and says, you know, if you think there's a there's a war going on, and if you think that you can do a better job than me, put on your royal robes and go out and defeat the sons of pride. Go out and bring the proud down. And then he moves to Behemoth and Leviathan. Hmm. Uh, and uh, Fial and um, um, Ortland in their books do a really good job of showing, and there's some other articles by uh, Trig Bay Mettinger on this, where they're showing that when you look at Behemoth and Leviathan against the background of ancient Near East, these are symbols of evil. Uh, it's a little harder to prove with Behemoth. But then a lot of people who take a natural view, because we've been talking about animals in the prior chapters, um, a lot of people say, no, that's just the hippo and the crocodile. Uh, because we've got an Egyptian, uh, there, there's an artwork in Egypt where the god Horus and the pharaoh are fighting. They've got spears or harpoons and they're fighting against a hippo and a crocodile who are symbols of Seth, who's an evil god. Uh, and so we've, we've got this and we've also got in the uh, Canaanite uh, myths, Baal has to defeat the sea and he has to defeat Leviathan. Leviathan is mentioned there. So is Tanin. Rahav, the proud one, by the way, that has nothing to do with Rahab of uh, Jer Jericho. <laughs> it looks the same in English, but it means proud one. That's a title for the sea that we, it's just in the Bible at this point, but you never know what might show up in the ancient Near East. And so I think when you get in with Behemoth and Leviathan, the Lord is saying, I made them, I made them, uh, but nevertheless, they, they don't want to be tamed. And they're, uh, they're just kind of doing their own thing. And uh, my take on it is in terms of the naturalistic view versus the symbolic view is I want to merge them. I think that it is describing a hippo and a crocodile, but not just any hippo and crocodile. I think um, he's, what the Lord is, he's using them as symbols. He's got the real animal there, but there's, there's something else. There's a mythical, maybe not mythical, supernatural dimension to it, that there's a spiritual reality behind the hippo and the crocodile. Uh, and that's what Job is doing. So I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too. I, I, I'm impressed by the arguments for them being natural creatures. Uh, and I'm also, I mean, I did a lot of research in, uh, on websites about the, the hippo and the crocodile. And boy, a lot of the details correspond to what, what we see there. But there are elements like the fire breathing of a Leviathan that I think go beyond uh, just the mere natural. But uh, I don't think we can say they're strictly symbolic. And so I want to combine the two because I think in ancient Israel, they wouldn't have had as much of a problem with a literal animal being energized by a spiritual force. And they don't have that problem in the ancient Near East either. And I think of Genesis 3. Um, I mean, it, it's pretty apparent there's etiology in Genesis 3. He's trying to explain present reality in light of what has happened in the past. That assumes historicity. So you can't just write Genesis 3 off as some kind of myth that God is using so, to communicate truth. But it's not just a snake, is it? It's a right. talking snake. And, and a typical Western response is the snake can talk. <laughs> the snake can talk. So it's this has got to be a fable or something like that. No, it doesn't. Not in the ancient Israelite world. Uh, there can be spiritual forces that energize uh, literal animals. And you see this in the ancient Near East as well. And I've written on that. I, I wrote a, a 
chapter on that in the Criswell Theological Review 10 years ago on etiology. Uh, and so that's my take on it. And it's very interesting when I teach this, some of my students that are, don't come from Western societies, they come from Africa, they, they come you know, from other places um, who, where they still in many ways think more like the Old Testament way of thinking. And I've had those students, they have no problem with this at all. Uh, I remember one of my students says, why wouldn't you see a spiritual reality behind a crocodile? It's an evil animal. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's kind of funny how that, that, that really surprised me that day. That kind of took me back. Um, but that's the way I see it. I, I, I take the best elements of both views. I bring them together. And I think that's what's uh, going on here. But there's definitely a spiritual dimension. And Leviathan is the reality. The reality behind Leviathan is Hasatan at the end of the, the book. It, a couple of questions that I have, just kind of following up to that. I'm curious how much of this is polemical. Isn't there an actual Leviathan in mythology of uh, of different yeah. religious systems? Like, is this not just polemic to say that, like, hey, these these monster gods of these other religions, like, they're nothing. I, I can take them out. So is it not also polemical? And I mean, curious, like, you're, you're mentioning, like, the serpent. But, like, I think of Genesis, you know, the, the big lamp and the little lamp, too. The govern the day and the night and the stars. And, like, the stars are, like, these... We know them to be gaseous bodies. And then, you know, like Pumbaa says, thousands of miles, gaseous balls of light burning in the sky, you know, but then also the Bible kind of talks to them about these angels, you know, and then, and then we have the, the, the king of Tyre, right? Like there's, there's this king, but like, maybe there's a spiritual thing behind that king too. Um, I'd be curious, one, could you like weigh into the polemical nature of other religions? Like, wouldn't it be, I'm, I'm trying to, I know that you said I accept both views, but but I'm trying to undermine the animal view and I want you to push back on me. So wouldn't it be silly to say, here, let me talk about this ancient mythical creature called Leviathan. Let me trash talk him when there was an actual creature called Leviathan. Like why make that a crocodile? Why make that a hippo? Why, why reduce it to naturalistic things when the ancient Near Eastern world was rich with language about Leviathan? And how does the Bible use the word Leviathan in other places? Is it used yeah, animalistically yeah. or is it always used spiritually? Okay, that's, that's great. Lot, lot to uh, lot to cover on that one. Uh, but I sorry, think, Michael asked again, three questions. I feel like it's the only way I can get back at him is is ask right. three questions well, I, back I'm to doing you. Doing a lot of talking, I'm doing a lot of filibustering. So you got to pack it was them great. in there. The um, yeah, I I can see why you would say that, but I would disagree with the dichotomizing of the natural and the supernatural. That's what I'm saying. You know, uh, Balaam's okay. donkey talks because he's energized by a spiritual entity. Uh, and so, and I think as you read through the description, it transcends the natural, but it's still an animal. A lot of it fits the natural. And so it's just a different way of thinking, but you're right. There is a polemical dimension, uh, in elsewhere in the old Testament, Leviathan is mentioned, uh, in conjunction with the sea, uh, just as he is in the Ugaritic myths. Uh, and Leviathan is a force of chaos, uh, evil, um, and he was around at creation. Uh, Psalm 74 refers to God defeating Leviathan uh, at the time of creation, and there's also Red Sea imagery there. So he also defeated Leviathan at the Red Sea, but at the same time, the sea is a, an opponent of God in history. Uh, lots of times the sea, and you've you got to think of Leviathan in conjunction with the sea, Yom. 
And the C is a symbol of hostile nations who oppose Israel and seek to destroy them. And the Lord protects his people from that. And then on Isaiah 27, 1, the Lord in the future is going to destroy Leviathan once and for all. So, yes, there is a um, symbolism, uh, Leviathan along with the sea and Tanin and Rahab. They're all, they all symbolize the sea, which is evil. Uh, and there is a polemic because in the Canaanite myths, it's Yahweh, the one true God, who defeats I mean, the Canaanite myths, it's Baal. Um, so the one true God comes along and he's contextualizing his self-revelation. That's something we haven't gotten into uh, today, uh, at least much. And we haven't talked about it in those terms. But God will communicate to people where they're at. And so God tries to make the point to people who are very tempted to worship Baal that I am the one true God and you have to worship me. You have to look to me for kids and crops. Because Baal was a fertility god, and he provided kids and crops, and that was really important for in their world. And the Lord basically says, I am the one that you will worship to receive those blessings. Uh, and so there is a polemic, uh, a, a big polemic against Baal throughout the Old Testament, especially in Judges, like First Samuel. I've written on that. And uh, so, yes, definitely a polemical dimension. And I think you could probably see that here as well, because it's Leviathan and the Lord is created Leviathan. It's a created being. Um, but you, you don't see consistency all the way through. Different authors use this image in different ways. Like in Psalm 104, it sounds as if Leviathan, 104.26, Leviathan is just a creature that's out there in the sea that the Lord created. And Psalm 104 is very much like Genesis 1, where the mythological dimension is really reduced. In Genesis 1, God is just the creator. And uh, mythology has been suppressed there. And same thing in Psalm 104. So Leviathan's just a rubber ducky in Psalm 104. But all, in all of these texts, political. the Lord's sovereignty over chaos and the sea is being emphasized. And I do want to say something before we finish today. I find it interesting that in Genesis 1-1, which I just, you know, I take as a heading, 1-1 and 1-2 is a heading. And then 1-2, you have a description of the primordial elements. So we're not sure how that came to be. I personally think there was a prior world that was judged and destroyed. But there's darkness and water there. There's the deep and the, and the darkness. And in the creation, God doesn't eliminate them. He integrates them into the created order. Uh, and I think this reflects the fact that there is this spiritual warfare that's been ongoing since even creation. And we read about these Psalms where God had to fight a battle against the sea in conjunction with creating. That's not described in Genesis 1. What we, we may see in Genesis 1 is the aftermath of that battle. At any rate, the sea is integrated into the world. God pushes all the water to one place. He, he divides it. There's the heavenly ocean and the earthly waters, and then he pushes the earthly ones to one place, and he calls them seas, plural, not sea. He's, he's trying to stay away from the mythological uh, notion in Genesis 1. And uh, then the dry land appears. Uh, and so, the, the, but the sea is part of the world as we know it, and it's part of Job's world uh, that the Lord refers to. How about the darkness? Well, he doesn't get rid of the darkness. Uh, he creates the day-night cycle. So you have light and darkness. Uh, but what happens in Revelation? 
Um, death comes into the world pretty quickly in Genesis, and the Lord's going to get rid of death. But what's going to be gone in the new creation? Uh, the, the, those primordial elements are eliminated. I just find that really fascinating. There will be no more darkness. There will be no more sea. They're gone because the the battle will be over. Praise God. Mm. The battle Amen. will be over. Amen. And uh, Jesus will be victorious. You just, and, you're like, hey, yeah. we've got five minutes left on the show. Let me just kind of introduce this thought of a pre-Adamic fallen destructed world on this theology well, podcast no big really deal and then you just that. duck out like that that was so yeah someone was up, saying man. we we may have to have a bob chisholm series uh <laughs> <laughs> no doubt so, uh fear yeah. of the lord I mean, it's Job. on that we we could that's gonna be that's gonna have to be nuanced and uh maybe we can do that another day for uh, sure that i would um i'd tell you when i didn't want to go a certain direction <laughs> yeah talk about okay, a cliffhanger well, I, if I, I could, like to if maybe... I could make a request uh, right here at the end, I, I do want this to be spiritually edifying. And if I could just comment briefly on uh, how I try to encourage people with the book of Job in light of the way I interpret it. I, I think I can do it pretty briefly. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually yeah. going to ask you, what does Job teach us about our own suffering and spiritual yeah. warfare yeah. and how those relate together? So. Yeah, Good. let's get practical. Good. Yeah, real quick. Uh, I, the first thing I, we see is innocent people sometimes experience intense pain, not because of sin, but ironically because of their righteousness. Um, mm. The suffering of the righteous is undeserved. It's without reason. Um, God sometimes subjects the righteous to undeserved suffering in order to demonstrate to the adversary that they are indeed righteous and that his decision to bless them is just. And so I will tell people sometimes, you know, you, you need to evaluate yourself when you experience suffering. The Lord may be trying to get your attention. You know, you may have wandered off the path. You may not be in the Job category. You may be undergoing divine discipline, and it's difficult. It's difficult to sort out. But I think a lot of people are truly following God. They're not perfect. And when it talks about Job being, you know, righteous and all this, uh, he himself admits he's not perfect. But he's a godly person. He's seeking to follow the Lord. He's, he's, he's characterized by the fear of the Lord. And I just tell some people sometimes, I just say, you know, you must really, um, God must really be impressed with you um, mm -hmm. to allow you to be subjected to this. And I'll bring Peter in and I'll say, you know, you have an opportunity. God has put you up there kind of on a pedestal like he did Job and he wants to show the enemy that he that there truly are righteous people who have chosen him. Um, because we didn't get into the Eliphaz thing in chapter four, but that spirit that come came to Eliphaz, he's an agent of the enemy, I think. Uh, at any rate, um, Satan wants people to feel guilty and. Uh, sometimes God wants to show, I think, Satan, there truly are people who want to follow me and they deserve to be blessed by me. And in the end, they will be vindicated and they will be richly blessed uh, for mm. enduring this kind of suffering. And uh, so when we see people suffering, we should not necessarily assume that sin is the cause. And we learn from Job's friends, if we jump to conclusions in that regard, we may be unjustly attacking an innocent person's integrity. 
we may be misrepresenting God's relationship with that innocent person, and we may incite God's anger. God got angry with Job's friend, even though a lot of the things they said were theologically true. Their application of their theology was flawed. And we got to be very, very careful that we don't misapply theological truth in real life situations. And so the Lord is engaged in a cosmic battle and the created order demonstrates this in the animal kingdom. And when the innocent suffer, they shouldn't accuse God of injustice. That's where Job went wrong. They should recognize that God may be subjecting this them to this for the same reason he did Job and that ultimately he is our savior and beyond the suffering. God is going to vindicate the righteous and richly bless them. In the end, the book of Job affirms retribution theology with a big qualifier. Hmm. So it's a good word. I think that, that can be encouraging yeah. to people who are suffering like Job. That. And I don't think it was just a one-time thing with Job. I think the story's there because it's going to be duplicated in the experience of God's people. That's yeah. good. Man, I think I that's, that. that's fantastic. And a fantastic note to end on. Um, Dr. Trism, thank you so much for coming on the, the, the program. And and yes, yes, we're definitely going to have to have you back on the program to unpack one of the many other subjects that you're <laughs> currently writing on, have written on. Some of the things you've mentioned today that we didn't have enough time to dive into. Uh, for those of you who are in the comments section right now and you're like, hey, uh, I'd like to listen to an episode on Fear of the Lord or I'd like to watch one maybe on uh, and pre-Adamic Earth. I don't know. Uh, uh, is that, would that be the gap theory? Is that what you're, you technically hold, I suppose? The yeah, although I don't. Yeah, my understanding of the Hebrew grammar in Genesis 1, 1 through 3 is not the same as the gap theory view. The gap okay. theory is an initial creation and then a fall and then a new creation described right in the text. To me, anything that was prior was before Genesis 1 1. Okay. Yeah. So. Well, there you have it, guys. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program. It was a, it was a huge honor. You guys are going to have to drop it in the comment section what you want to watch uh, so that when we send this, uh, this next invite out that we get it scheduled right. So I uh, thank you so well, much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. Uh, for those of you who are uh, watching and you haven't subscribed already, we are at like 3,000 left, and then we're at 100,000 subscribers. So uh, we're like 97 right now at the time of filming this. So make sure to hit that subscribe button. Share Remnant Radio around if you found this video encouraging and edifying. Uh, and if you want to support the channel, there are links in the description. You can give a one-time gift on PayPal or you can give a reoccurring gift on Patreon. As low as five bucks a month, you help keep us the lights on here and feed Michael's children. They're starving. Look at his. Look at his. Look at that face. That's the face of a man who starves his children. You should. You should. <laughs> anyway, uh, bless these guys. We will see you next Monday and Tuesday from four to five p.m. Central Standard Time. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.